Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Uh, In his book, The God Delusion, the atheist writer Richard Dawkins wrote that, quote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, felicidal, pestic, but pestilential, megalomaniacal—excuse me—I can't talk. Megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. End quote. But is that actually true? Um, many atheists, Richard Dawkins included, would say yes. Um, there's even a whole website called EvilBible.com, which is devoted to showing you from the Bible just how of an unpleasant character God is. Well, my guest today is philosopher Paul Copan. He uh, is known for writing a book responding to all of these various moral criticisms of the Bible. We're going to be getting into some of that today. It's called, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the God of the Old Testament. Um, it, I, I love the book. It's one of my favorites. Um, there are a handful of books that deal with this topic, But I think his is the best because of its uh, accessibility and because of the depth. It gets really deep into the weeds. I mean, I think it even addresses some of the some some obscure things like the whole Akon's family getting stoned incident. Just, um, you know, others are kind of more broad and uh, don't quite get as in-depth. But, um, Professor Copan, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Evan. Great to join you and look forward to our conversation. So, first off, um, many atheists accuse God of being arrogant or a narcissist because he demands worship. He doesn't just desire it, but he demands it. Moreover, we can see from Old Testament narratives that failure to carry out this command is punishable. I would I, now I would agree that failure to worship God is a sin. The Bible is pretty clear on that. But Professor Copan, how would you respond to the argument that God is a narcissist for demanding worship? I think the whole question about God's apparent vanity or narcissism uh, is the result of a category mistake because it renders God to be a being on the level, same level as creatures. But if God is the creator of all things, then, and, and God is the one who, to whom uh, you know, all you know, goodness uh, is to be ascribed, that God is the one who is worship worthy because of his intrinsic goodness, uh, you know, God makes us in his image with dignity and worth, Uh, in order to know him, to relate to him, and so on. 
So when God creates human beings, this isn't out of vanity, but it's out of a desire to share his goodness and joy with us. Now, one of, one of the aspects of the Old Testament uh, that connects with the issue of jealousy, uh, God, you know, we'll probably touch on this a little bit more, but uh, the reason that God is a jealous God is not out of some sort of insecure uh, pettiness, but rather it's because it actually harms us if we find our own God substitutes, if we put our trust in something that is non-ultimate rather than in God who is worthy of our trust. Uh, so it's actually like a parent commanding a child, don't you ever touch drugs, uh, don't you ever do this or that because it's going to bring harm to you. And so God in a very firm way is, uh, is telling us, commanding us even, to align ourselves with reality. Uh, worship is ultimately reality alignment. Uh, to worship the creature rather than the creator is idolatry and it is a distortion of reality. So when we're called to worship God, God is calling us to live our lives as realists rather than anti-realists uh, or constructionists. We construct our own deities. Uh, so this is really at the heart of what, it is, what it's about, uh, that God is pressing upon humanity to find our ultimate satisfaction in him. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I think that that's really at the heart of what we are talking about uh, when we're dealing with God commanding worship. It's a command to reality alignment. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, you, you listen to um, Christian testimonies um, and I, I think we all, we know what it's like. Our, our lives were just really disordered before we became Christians, before we came to Christ. And um, uh, some of us were in, you know, worse shape than others when we found Christ. But, uh, you know, our, our, we, we just... We don't, like you said, we don't properly align our lives to the way we're the way we're supposed to. And we, you know, it's 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 kind of uh, an evangelical cliche, but it is true. Everyone makes something their god, and it's either a literal god, like you know Baal or Asherah, or it's yourself. You know, you live a hedonistic life, or it's some object like drugs, sex, or money. And when you live for those things. Um, if you, you know, you make that your number one priority, that, you know, just brings a whole lot of unhappiness, both to yourself and to those around you. Absolutely. C.S. Lewis in his book, or in his essay, The Weight of Glory, talked about how we, uh, you know, that as we worship those God substitutes, uh, because they're not ultimate, uh, they're destined to break the heart of their worshipers. Uh, so it's 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 inevitably going to let us down, and so we. Uh, that's why putting our trust in the one who made us, who made us in His image, uh, who made us for relationship with Himself, who made us out of uh, His out of a free gift. God didn't have to create us; uh, He created us to enter into that joy and love that the Triune God shares. Yeah. Um, now, the way I understand your response is that um, God worships. Uh, God commands us to worship him because 
if we don't, if we worship other things, it's going to bring us harm. It's going to bring us destruction. It's going to make us and everyone around us unhappy. And I definitely agree with that. But I think there are like two sides of the coin. I think there's also the fact that God just deserves it. And it, I have a blog post uh, called Worship Me or Burn, the Oversimplification of an Atheist Meme. And here's why I give an argument for why worshiping God is immoral. And it, it, it's a five-step, uh, it's a three-step syllogism in the original post, but some, you know, I went back and forth with, it, with an agnostic and it got up to like five because uh, I modified it a little bit. But the, the modified version goes like this. One, it is immoral to not give someone that which they deserve. Two, God deserves worship. Three, therefore, it is immoral to not worship God. Four, a perfectly good God would not would want uh, would not want people to do anything immoral, like depriving people of what they deserve to occur. Five. Therefore, a perfectly good God would desire people to worship Him. Three follows from one and two. Five follows from one and four. Um, and I think premise one is pretty obvious. I I don't think premise one is uh, that is that controversial. Uh, if you are entitled to something, it would be unjust for someone to deprive you of that. Like, say I work 75 hours a week, I both deserve and expect to get paid on payday. After all, I didn't have to work for my employer. I could have been someone else's employee or I could have stayed at home. In fact, I uh, wouldn't be working at all if I didn't need money to buy food and keep the lights on. So if I'm not getting what I need, I won't work for this particular employer. Um, I'll do something else that keeps me financially afloat. Uh, work without pay is an injustice because as the Bible says in Luke 10, 7 and 1 Timothy 5, 18, the worker deserves his wages. We, we all recognize that it's unjust to not give someone the credit uh, for, they uh, for what they deserve. Um, uh, if, I lend, if I lend you money, I expect to get paid back eventually. If I write a song and record it, I get, I deserve to get credit for it. I don't, it would be unjust for someone to take that song and claim that they wrote it instead of me. Um, plagiarism is unjust because it doesn't give uh, credit where credit is due. Um, now premise two, I lean on perfect being theology. Um, I think premise two is backed up by both the Bible and and perfect being theology, perfect being theology. One way to justify that would be by the modal ontological argument for God's existence. Uh, that entails perfect being theology. Um, God is uh, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, morally perfect, all loving, uh, and he's a necessary being. He's literally the greatest thing in existence. And so because he's the greatest thing in existence, that's why he deserves worship. Uh, he is, he's worthy of it. Um, and so it's not, um, and so I, I think, I think this is a good argument, uh, for the immorality of idolatry. Um, and I would like to end with what C.S. Lewis said. He said, quote, a man can no more extinguish the glory of God by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can extinguish the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the wall of his cell. Uh, what do you think of that argument, Professor Copan? 
Yeah, could you repeat premise four? Uh, I think there's a little bit of a, I think a, a slight revision needed um, just in the one of the pronouns. I just want to make sure we had that clear. Yeah. Uh, premise four says a perfectly good God would not want people to do anything immoral. Uh, basically, God would not want people to sin. Okay, all right. And, and, and depriving people of what they deserve is, uh, is an example of something immoral. Okay. All right. So referring to God rather than to say human being, uh, God being deprived of what is uh, what he deserves, correct? Yeah, sorry. It was a fro the screen was frozen for a second. You just want to, I just want to clarify that. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I do think that that uh, articulates what is behind uh, the point that we are trying to make that God is indeed worship worthy. Uh, and if God is uh, worthy, uh, deserving of worship, that uh, we are morally obligated to acknowledge him. In fact, uh, Paul says in Acts uh, 17, uh, you know, 30, that, you know, that God commands all people everywhere to repent, that this is a uh, a just command, and also God gives, with the, with the implication there too, is that God gives people what is necessary to actually repent, uh, so he prepares the way for anyone uh, to to repent, so that it's not as though God uh, commands it, but doesn't actually give the resources to do so. Uh, so I would certainly uh, affirm that that is uh, endorsed by, uh, by Scripture, and as, as you said, by uh, the notion of uh, perfect being theology, which is, I would say, uh, supported by Scripture. It, uh, I think it indeed flows from Scripture. Yeah. Um, yeah, so good. I, I thought it was a good argument. And uh, for anybody interested, I'll I'll leave a link to this uh, to this blog post in the, the podcast description. And I'll, I'll also leave a link to uh, Paul Copan's book is God a Moral Monster. And if you're interested, if you're one of those weird people that reads lengthy comment sections, I got this long back and forth uh, with an agnostic friend of mine named Sam Burke. We have like 47 comments of debating this issue. Um, so yeah, you could check, you could check that out. So next, um, this is another objection that I've uh, that's related to worship, and that's the issue of jealousy. Uh, in the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, we read, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the, th to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verses one to six. Um, elsewhere in the Bible, we read that jealousy is a sin. Isn't God sinning by being jealous? In the mention of divine jealousy, it's in the context of idolatry and God's, you know, and of course, within the context of Israel, God has made a covenant with the Israelites. And so it's often portrayed as a husband-wife relationship. God has entered into this relationship with Israel and uh, marital terms are used to convey this bond. 
So consider a marriage relationship. If someone is encroaching upon that marital bond in the ancient Near Eastern context, um, other deities, other nations that are pulling Israel away from uh, devotion to the God who delivered them from Egypt and made a covenant with them, uh, that this would be uh, appropriate. Uh, you know, if there is a husband who is not jealous when there is a, a guy who is flirting with his wife, uh, you know, if there is a, if a husband is not concerned uh, about uh, encroachment, uh, there's something wrong. Uh, there's something morally deficient about this picture. Uh, we recognize the appropriateness of jealousy. Uh, in fact, the word uh, jealousy, in, for example, in, in Greek, uh, you know, it, it's related to the word zeal. It's, you know, the same word, uh, you know, zeal or jealousy for your house has consumed me, uh, is said about Jesus after he drove the money changers out of the temple. Uh, so it's that, you know, God is zealous for his people. God is zealous to maintain and preserve the integrity of that relationship. And where something is not uh, you know, where, where, where something infringes upon that, where there is where Israel is being pulled away from that. Uh, jealousy is totally appropriate. It doesn't spring from insecurity. It doesn't spring from pettiness. It springs from the appropriate commitment that comes out of this loving bo covenantal bond that God has made uh, with his people. Yeah. The way I understand it is exactly the way you said. It's like it's, it's, it's a marital sort of jealousy because you have any, and the Bible, like I said, it even talks about, you know, this husband wife relationship uh, between God and the old Testament and between Jesus and the church in the new Testament. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of see it as like, you know, there are other things that we would consider to be sins uh, in certain contexts, like taking a human life. Well, sometimes it's murder, but sometimes you're doing it to protect innocent lives, either your own or, you know, like if you shoot a terrorist, so that that's good. In that case, and likewise, there are good kinds of jealousy and there are bad kinds of jealousy. You know, if you're if you are jealous of your sibling because your parent got uh, got him, you know, shinier toys uh, or is spending more time with them, or at least, you know, you perceive uh, your parent as spending more time. Well, that, that's not a really good kind of jealousy. But if you're if your wife is you know, flirting with all kinds of men or, or even worse, if she's actual, if she's actively having sex with those men, then that would, that's a good jealousy. I, I would be, it would be very right to be angry over, over that. Um, and God, I like, I, the book of Ezekiel, I listened to Michael Heiser's um, Naked Bible podcast, him, you know, exegeting the book of Ezekiel. It's really, really explicit. The English translations have toned it down significantly. Um, and the way that he describes Israel, uh, you know, whoring after other gods, um, it's just really, really graphic. He, 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 he talks about Israel as just the worst whore who ever lived. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, language does appear over and over again. Of course, Hosea is another example of that. Uh, husband-wife bond and uh, the picture of a prophet who uh, goes out into the streets to tell the Israelites to repent. And you can imagine the Israelites mocking Hosea saying, hey, we know where your wife has been. And he would say, well, that's exactly what you're doing with God. So there's a, a powerful 
picture uh, that, uh, that Jose is portraying uh, regarding Israel's relationship with uh, the God who made a covenant with them. Mm -hmm. um, so next question. Genesis chapter 22 verses 1 to 14 tells the story of God commanding Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. However, before Abraham goes through with it, God stops him. Uh, the skeptic objects that God is essentially toying with Abraham here. Oh, command your son. And then while, Ag while Abraham is in mental anguish over the thought of losing his son, at the last second, God goes, just kidding. Uh, I actually, it reminds me of a meme I saw where um, the angel of the Lord appears to Abraham and said, dude, it's just a joke. There's the camera over there, referring to the Candid Camera series. Um, how would you respond to this objection? Well, it does not take into account the broader biblical narrative that portrays Abraham and God as having had a lengthy, trusting relationship. Uh, and God has also not only provided, you know, called Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans, but has also brought him to a new land, has provided for him, has provided a miracle son for him in Isaac. And also we see prior to this that uh, when there is a difficulty with Hagar, um, Abraham's uh, second tier wife, uh, through whom he had Ishmael, uh, and there is a trouble within the, uh, within the tents of uh, Abraham, uh, that that God says, go ahead and do what Sarah says, just let them go, but I will make of Ishmael a great nation. So there is something already preparatory uh, taking place in that regard, that God is able to take care of Ishmael and Hagar, uh, that they will not perish in the wilderness. So it's seen as something of a preliminary test that uh, that God can be trusted on, and so in the next chapter, in chapter 22, God says in the same language as used uh, as when Ishmael and Hagar are, are uh, taken, you know, when they're leaving, uh, that, that God is using tender language. You know, please take several commentators note that there is a certain tenderness uh, that is expressed in how God tells Abraham to do this. And Abraham already knows that God is going to come through. He's already provided a miracle child for, uh, for Abraham and Sarah. So that when Abraham says to his servants that they're gonna go on further to the region of Moriah, he says, we will go and worship and we will return. Abraham is confident that God is going to do something. How? He doesn't know. Uh, the author of Hebrews comments on this in chapter 11, where he says that Abraham believed that God was even able to raise the dead. So he's confident that God is able to do something miraculous. He's able to do something extraordinary, but he already knows the promises of God. He already knows how God has delivered so far and that God is trustworthy, even though this is a uh, difficult step. Uh, you see Abraham who is trusting God in the midst of it all, that there is a certain narrative context that, that gives, that sheds light on this command. It's not just somehow this command coming out of nowhere and Abraham is disoriented, has no clue as to who's speaking to him, but I guess it must be God. 
Uh, no, there's a there's a narrative context. There have been, you know, you know in chapter 12, <laughs> that's where all things begin. And then uh, we get to chapter 22 and that's where we have the, uh, that's where we have the narrative related to uh, to Isaac. So, so I, I think that there's a, a lot of times it can be caricatured, overplayed, uh, a lot of things left out of the picture. Uh, that once you look at the broader narrative and God's relationship to Abraham and the trust that is uh, that has been built over uh, over the decades uh, between you know, Abraham and uh, and God, that, that there is a uh, you know that there is a relational uh, grit uh, and uh, and tenacity that does isn't just something that is a flash in the pan. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. Um, how would you, how do you respond? This is really not uh, this next, this follow-up uh, question. It's not so much uh, an objection to the goodness of God. It's a, it's really a question about the omniscience of God. Uh, people will ask, well, God knows everything. He knows what, you know, he knows that, you know, if he commanded Abraham sacrifice his son, then Abraham would do it. So why, why does God need to test Abraham's faith since he, he already he, he already knows what Abraham was going to do, and even you know what he would do. He, um, does open theists would say, well, you know, God doesn't God doesn't have foreknowledge, and that's why he had to test Abraham, you know, to see, uh, oh, if I test Abraham, uh, will he go through it? Oh, he did go through it, so that means he's worthy of uh, of the promise after all. Um, do, do the, does the open theist have a point here? I would say that the open theist, interestingly, will take some things like Greg Boyd uh, mentions this, um, that uh, you know, and they they tend to be very literal. That this is uh, that God literally doesn't know uh, what the future is uh, when it comes to human free choices, uh, and so this is the actual God who doesn't know. But when it comes to God saying to Moses uh, or Joshua that you know, you're, you're to drive out the Canaanites. Well, that's not the actual God speaking. That's the textual God speaking. That's the, that's the author of, that's the, what the author's own imagination uh, and fallen worldview and proneness to violence uh, is actually saying. So it's not the actual God, the real God, uh, but it's actually the textual God of the narrator uh, or of Abraham or Moses or, or, or Joshua themselves. So, uh, so interestingly, I'd say, well, why not say that this, you know, this profession of or seeming ignorance of God is merely the textual God, not the actual God. This is just kind of a literary sort of thing that, uh, you know, so I, I would say you can kind of flip it on its head, but, but more to the point, uh, I would say there are many places in the Old Testament, for example, where God is asking questions, and it sounds like God is ignorant, but he's actually not. It's just part of the literary interplay uh, expressing the divine human dynamic. So when God says, Adam, where are you? Does that mean he doesn't know where Adam is? Uh, when God says to Abraham in chapter 18, uh, that God is going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah because the outcry has come up to him. And it says, I will go down and see if this is true, and then I will know. Well, God doesn't even know the present uh, in this instance. Uh, according to the open theist, God knows all things up to the present. Well, in these cases, God is going on in the present. 
I'd say a safer place to land is that this is literary, it's not to be literalized, and that even the author of Hebrews recognizes that Abraham believed that God was even able to raise the dead before he raised the knife. Uh, and, and also the text itself, Abraham says, we will worship and we will return. He's speaking that both, he, saying that both he and Isaac will return. Doesn't know how it's gonna happen, uh, but it's going to happen. He's confident of that. Uh, what do you, one um, option that um, I've re reflected on is that God may have done it for the sake of the heavenly host, um, you know, the, the divine counsel. Oh. Uh, I think that this may have been, you know, why God tempted you know, let let Satan tempt Job in uh, Job one and two, where you have the sons of God being present. Yeah. And Satan makes his accusation, so maybe it was to to vindicate Abraham, not for himself, because he knew because he already knows, but the non omniscient angels who may be present is like. What do you think of that option? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's possible. Uh, wouldn't rule that out. But I would say too that uh, there's also a th theological point that's being made here. For one thing, it's making a statement to the entire nation of Israel who is to come from Abraham uh, and that they will recognize that this was a, an important moment that Abraham is portrayed as a father, the father of faith, that he trusted in God. And it's, it's as it were, you know, Abraham's act demonstrates his faithfulness to the very extremity uh, that he, Abraham is trusting God even in the face of what seems to be difficult and puzzling and uh, and you know and from maybe the critic's point of view seem you know you know it's just harsh and even cruel. Uh, but but what we have here is a one it anchors the faith of Israel in a father Abraham who has trusted God in the direst of circumstances. And it's also a prefiguring of what is to come. And we see this in Romans chapter eight, you know, that, uh, that you know, God himself who gives his one and only son, you know, it, you know, that he did not withhold his one and only son, the same language that's used in Genesis 22, that Abraham, because he did not withhold his one and only son, uh, we see that God actually does that and allows it to go through at the hands of evil men who put Jesus to death. And so, so he is, doesn't even spare his own son. Jesus himself, of course, voluntarily, willingly lays down his life. It's not as though it's pitting father against son. Not at all. That's a false portrayal uh, of the atonement. Uh, but it's, it's, a tr it's an act of the triune God. Uh, God and Jesus both love the world, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so, uh, so in this act, Jesus voluntarily lays down his life. So his life is not spared as, as Isaac's was. So God is willing to go even farther uh, in, in this act. And so we see that there is something profoundly theological in this whole narrative. There's a connection here. And I think that there is also, that plays a, a huge role in all of this. Let's talk about the Canaanite conquest. Uh, this subjection to the goodness of God is one that skeptics always bring up. In fact, I think it's their number one go-to passage. Uh, there, It's like the first one that comes to mind when uh, they want to argue that the God of the Old Testament is evil. Uh, we read of 
God's command to Joshua and the Israelite army in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Quote, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy, end quote. The skeptic reads this passage off and says, how could a loving and good God command genocide? Paul Copan, how would you respond to this? Did God, God command genocide? How could God? Well, I would say that, one, genocide is not in view. For one thing, it's not as though God is... Uh, had, you know, or the Israelites, uh, for that matter, have a disdain for the Canaanites. Uh, it, does, it isn't driven out of any sort of ethnic uh, component. Uh, for one thing, uh, God tells the Israelites in, uh, in the book of Ezekiel, you know, that you're, uh, you, came, you came from the, you know, you, know, you, you, you came from the land of the, you know, the Amorite, you know, that you're, you know, you're, you're, you know it, it mentions the, the Canaanite roots. Uh, you know, Canaanite and Hittite roots, and that there is that the Israelites come from that very stock. So it's not as though this uh, some somehow connected to ethnicity. You put an Israelite and a Canaanite next to each other, you can't tell the difference between them. Uh, they speak the same language, they dress the same way. They, uh, you know, you know. So there's no no fundamental difference in in terms of what they look like. Uh, what the fundamental issue is, and Deuteronomy 7 also talks about this, is to you know, that they're worshiping false gods that are going to be a, a snare to the Israelites. But it's interesting, too, to add, to, if you keep reading, that when it says, when you have destroyed them, it says, do not make a treaty with them. Do not intermarry with them. Well, if they've already been destroyed, if they're no longer, they've been utterly obliterated, well, what are you doing making treaties with them? Uh, again, it re represents a kind of clash between some of the images that are there. Uh, we see that even in the book of Joshua, where we're told, especially in chapter 11, that Joshua did all that Moses commanded in terms of, quote, utterly destroying. But as we read the text, the Canaanites are not at all utterly destroyed. They continue to hang around. In fact, in Joshua 23, we're told that you know, there are many nations still that need to be driven out. Uh, in Judges chapter 1, which follows right on the heels of Joshua, we see that the Israelites could not drive out this or that Canaanite people. They continue to remain, like the Jebusites, they continue to remain there to this day. So what's going on here? Well, on the one hand, you see that trash talk that I've been talking about, that, uh, that the Israelites have been uh, they've been part of this ancient Near Eastern, uh, uh, you know, trash talk where we had what we say about a team. Well, we totally slaughtered those guys. We totally annihilated that team. It was that way in the ancient Near East. You could have a narrow victory and still talk about slaughtering your opponents, utterly destroying them, etc. Uh, that this is common in uh, Egyptian, Assyrian uh, battle accounts. Uh, where there's that exaggeration. And it's also true, especially in Joshua, uh, where we have that language. Uh, so you can have people who are allegedly utterly destroyed. And then you look 
sometimes the same chapter, sometimes a couple of chapters later, those same people are around. They haven't been utterly destroyed, not by a long shot. In fact, the Canaanites continue to linger in the land for generations, uh, to, you know, to the time of Solomon and beyond into the time of Hezekiah. So, so there are, it's, it's a, a very long period of time. We see lots of Canaanites there. Uh, John and Harvey Walton uh, offer a helpful analogy here. Uh, because they tie the issue of, quote, utter destruction to, uh, to the issue of identity. Uh, the, the problem is not the Canaanites, because the Israelites have had friendly relationships with the Canaanites over the, over the generations. Uh, the problem is when those Canaanites are involved in pernicious practices like uh, bestiality, uh, you know, temple prostitution, uh, you know, uh, infant sacrifice, uh, you know, incest and so forth, these things that would be considered criminal in any civilized society uh, and present a threat to the fledgling nation that God is calling to bring blessing to the ends of the earth, uh, that there's a lot at stake in this, in this matter. And so if the Israelites do not remove the identity of the Canaanites or drive them out, uh, then they're going to be a thorn in the side of the Israelites. Uh, so it's kind of like the, uh, in the, and John and Harvey Walton point this out in one, in their book, uh, on the Canaanite conquest, where they say yeah, that, that that book that book is called the Lost World of the Canaanite Conquest, right? right? Yeah, and so they talk about the you know that Nazi Germany and how when the Second World War was over, you had the Nazi Nazi ideology vilified, you had the monuments torn down, you had the uh, the leaders of uh, the Nazi Party uh, put to death, and so forth. Uh, so basically, that, that they say this is what it means to utterly destroy, uh, or harem, or haram, the verb, uh, an identity. Uh, you have largely in place the German population, but you have the identity removed. And so when you see that language of utter destruction, when the Israelites utterly destroyed their opponents, uh, the Waltons say, well, it probably it, it means that the Israelites were victorious, but in terms of the extent of the damage, uh, who was killed and so forth, we're just not told, and it's it, it is couched in hyperbole, uh, in 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 this exaggerated language. Uh, I'll give you an example of how this uh, works. Even uh, the book of Deuteronomy also uses extreme rhetoric to make its point, and it'll even bring in women and children who aren't even in the battle scenario. So, for example, in uh, in Numbers 21, we have this battling of, you know, these two kings, uh, Sihon and Og, uh, king, you know, these, these two, uh, two kings, and the, the Israelites utterly destroy them. Well, we're told in one of these battles that, um, that Og takes his army uh, and, uh, and, and he, they travel 20 miles, you know, so that from the, you know, from one river to another, the Arnon to the Jabbok River, and they, you know, so this is a uh, kind of a hefty military uh, uh, you know, uh, hike uh, that they're undertaking. So women and children obviously aren't going to be there. But when you read the recounting of this in the book of Numbers, chapters two and three, it mentions the sweeping language of man and woman, young and old. It looks like they're there. But actually, when you look at the original battle scene, it was just the king, his sons and the armies. 
So there wasn't even, there weren't even any women present there, but yet that language is just thrown in there. And of course it's picked up later on in, uh, in the book of uh, uh, 1 Samuel 15, uh, where that same language is being used, but it's actually going to be at a pitched battle and women aren't even gonna be around at this battle. In fact, the Kenites, friends of the Israelites are told by Saul, don't hang out with the Amalekites. We're just, our battle is with them. It's not with you. And so the Kenites leave. So there are obviously aren't going to be women hanging around there. But after the battle, we're told that, you know, that he utterly destroyed the Amalekites. And then there's this vast terrain that is mentioned, which is also part of the rhetoric of the ancient Near East. There's a, there's a, there's a single battle site. And then there's a picture of universal conquest. And it goes all the way to Egypt that he's that he, that he you know, allegedly hunts down all the Amalekites. And then the narrator and Saul both report to Saint, you know, that they say that Saul utterly destroyed them. Well, however, that's to be translated. It, it could, you know, you can have someone who's haram, but ends up not being utterly destroyed. So that's another issue. How do you even translate the word? Because you have people at the end of Leviticus, uh, you know, or, yeah, like uh, someone who is a servant who actually is haram. That is, he becomes consecrated to serve in the tabernacle, just like an animal or even a field is given over to the service of priests. And that is, those are haram, but again, there's not utter destruction. It's just removal from kind of ordinary duty. Uh, it's a kind of a, a change of identity for them. Uh, but again, there's sense of life here. So there's a sense of consecration, but, uh, but again, it's not slaughter or something like that. So there's a lot going on. And even when you get to 1 Samuel, at the end of 1 Samuel, David again, just like Saul, Saul he's fighting against the Amalekites and, and 400 uh, of the Amalekites escape. And David fights over that same vast terrain that Saul did earlier in the book against the Amalekites. So something else is going on here. Uh, and so, so I'd say that there's a lot of that ancient Near Eastern rhetoric going on. There's a lot of, there are a lot of literary devices going on here. And we ought to be careful about simply saying, oh, that's genocide. Uh, there's a lot more going on here. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, there was even like an archeological description. Um, I can't remember, I can't remember who, it, but it was some army that said that they completely destroyed Israel. But we know we know that wasn't you know that's not the case because Israel's still here today. It was there in 500 AD. It was there in the time of Jesus. It Israel was there. You know the Israel and Israelites lived long after this inscription. Right. Yeah. King Misha. You know and the the Misha Stele says that you know that that's Israel right. is no yeah. more. And so uh, of course, I mean the northern the northern uh, kingdom of Israel was devastated. Uh, you know over a century later uh, by the Assyrians. Uh, and so there, so it was a premature pronouncement by King Misha uh, to say that, uh, this Moabite king. Uh, and you do have that sort of thing, you know, the various Egyptian uh, uh, pharaohs who are saying that they've utterly destroyed, they left their opponents as ash, that the king only remained and, and there were no other opponents left standing, et cetera. Again, we know from the historical realities that those were uh, hyper exaggerations. And uh, and I, by the way, I'm working, you know, of course, Matt Flanagan and I, we worked on a book together called Did God Really Command Genocide, which goes into a lot more detail on this. And then I'm going to kind of bring some of these strands together in a uh, in a forthcoming book called Is God a Vindictive Bully? Uh, thanks again to Richard Dawkins for uh, another
uh, um, so it's got, is got a vindictive bully, uh, which will bring in a number of questions, not only related to warfare, servitude, Elisha and the bears, uh, the firstborn of Egypt, uh, the treatment of women, uh, just covering a host of issues, God's hardening Pharaoh's heart. So I'm going to go into a host of other topics here. And, uh, and so stay tuned so for that. I'm basically, so basically this is like, is God a moral monster too? Something like that. I'm trying to avoid overlap with my other two books, one of which was with Matt Flanagan. And so, but I'm trying to recap some of those things and also bring in new material that I hope will bring further illumination on these topics. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, you're uh, the the book with Flanagan and the, you know, the is is got a moral monster, which has been out for several years now. They're both um, re really good works, and I recommend the audience to uh, pick those up to go into more detail than we have here. I want to ask a, a follow-up question. Uh, I, I agree with the interpretation that this is ancient Near Eastern warfare language. It's hyperbole. They're not literally destroying every last Canaanite who, who breathes. But a lot of Christians that I talk to, um, especially those of the more fundamentalist stripe, they have a problem with just hyperbole in general. They say, well, right. hyperbole is exaggeration and exaggeration is like pretty much lying. And, you know, does that doesn't does that mean that the biblical author is lying to us? Yeah, this is a problem uh, of kind of the difference between treating the text literally and treating the text literarily. A lot of people say, well, I interpret the Bible literally. Uh, well, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Uh, when, the, when Isaiah 55 says the trees of the field will clap their hands, I don't think you're interpreting that literally. When Jesus says, I am the door, I am the true vine, that sort of thing. Uh, he is, I'm the, you know, I'm the bread of life. Uh, you know, these are these are metaphors. These are pictures, uh, and we shouldn't take them literally. Uh, and you 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 do as you treat each type of literature according to the way the author intended it, rather than having a one size fits all approach to literature. So if I say, "Once upon a time, there were three bears," and so forth, well. We know from once upon a time, there's already a genre connection here. And so Jesus, when he says the kingdom of God is like, well, you've got a genre here, a parable uh, that is being told. And you don't necessarily have to hold to all the details in some sort of an allegorical fashion or treat them as though this really happened in history or something like that. Uh, but you, and you also with with poetry, there's a, there are all sorts of, uh, you know, fig, you know, there's a lot of figurative language and so forth. So I'd say hyperbole is is one form of speaking you know i've you know parents will say i've told you a million times to pick up this or that uh you know to their children and well it's not we know it's not a million times but you get the point uh it's been repeated over and over again uh so so we use that kind of language ourselves but it's not seen as deceptive it's not seen as uh misleading uh, and when the scriptures, let's take the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, when we look at Jesus, we see four uh, accounts in the Gospels. Uh, we see this repeated in the book of Acts, that the tomb was empty, that God raised Jesus from the dead, that he was restored bodily. 
uh, was as though he his body just rotted in the tomb, but Jesus was raised uh, in, in his soul or something like that. No, it's, it's emphasizing the physicality of Jesus' resurrection. So it's not as though you have, you know, so as we read the, as you just keep that in mind, we have consistent testimony of Jesus' bodily resurrection. That's what happened. The tomb was empty because Jesus' body was raised from the dead. When you look at the Canaanite question, you see uh, on the ledger, and, uh, and I talk about, we talk about this in our book, uh, uh, Did God Really Command Genocide? And I'll repeat that in this uh, forthcoming book. Uh, we'll, uh, there are two columns, one that says these Canaanites were utterly destroyed, no survivors, etc. And then in the next column, those same people reappear and they have not been literally destroyed, yeah, etc. So, so you have within the text itself indicators that there is hyperbole going on, and that is proven by the fact that you have lots of survivors uh, who are being described as utterly having having been utterly destroyed, or however we're to interpret that term or translate that term. So uh, that's what I would say: uh, that you take something that is intended to be. You know, figurative or hyperbolic is hyperbolic, but that doesn't mean that everything uh, therefore becomes untrustworthy. Yeah, the way I've usually responded to these people who you know bring up this concern to me when I've um, either talked about this or talked about other places in Scripture where I think hyperbole is being present, um, it's that the, um, inerrancy is tied to authorial intent. What is the author trying to convey here? If if what he's trying to convey if that corresponds to reality, then it doesn't really matter how he words it. Um, if I, you know, like if I say my suitcase weighs a ton or my bag weighs a ton, and it usually does when I go to conferences and I load up on books, I don't, I'm not saying it literally weighs, you know, how many pounds a ton is. I think it's, 2000. I, think, I think it's a thousand or something. Two, two. It's 2000. Yeah. I'm not saying it weighs exactly that much. What I'm trying to convey is, it's just really, really heavy. Mm -hmm. Now, I would only be lying or wrong if the bag was as light as a feather. And likewise, with this ancient Near Eastern war language, uh, the biblical author would only be wrong if the Israelites lost the battle to the Canaanites, if they, if they were defeated. Um, but what they're trying to convey is we just overwhelmed them, we won the battles, and now we occupy the land. And... That's true. So, you know, inerrancy is not threatened. Yeah. And, and again, you, you don't even have to hold to inerrancy to, uh, to maintain that. I mean, there are people, plenty of people who take this position, who, uh, who hold to this, you know, hyperbolic uh, view and would, would, would articulate uh, those things the same way that you have. But, uh, but yeah, uh, the point applies to both, uh, both positions. So let's uh, let's move on now to the the issue of um, Deuteronomy 22. Um, this is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 to 24, and the author writes, "Quote: If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help." Though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, you shall purge the evil from your midst. End quote. How can God be good, the, the skeptics argue, when he punishes a woman just for being raped? Uh, in what possible world is it fair to punish a woman for being the victim of a crime? 
you know, punish the man, sure, but you know, even even kill him. But the woman too? Is this passage evidence that God is evil and unjust? What should Christians make of this passage? Yeah. Well, the yeah, and I get I go I go into detail in the Moral Monster book, but just briefly, uh, the text is indicating that she was not raped, that it was consensual. Otherwise, she would have cried out. Uh, that this is a picture of something that is a you know, again because and because she was betrothed, you know, it does say that she has uh, you know you know basically broken her you know, what what is a like a marital vow. It's like Joseph, who's betrothed to Mary, uh, you know, that he needed, you know, he's going to divorce her uh, uh, quietly, uh, you know, because they were betrothed, they weren't even married, but yet the betrothal itself was binding. And so in the same way, because she violated this, uh, this covenant uh, with her betrothed, uh, you know, it's clear, and the, the text indicates that she was not uh, crying out that it was the assumption is that it was consensual. Uh, so this is you know, so this is not at all uh, a, a a rape scenario. Uh, it's not a some sort of a forcible, undesired uh, um, sexual uh, encounter. Uh, so so nothing like that. Yeah, and there's even a similar passage. I think it's in the same chapter. Um, I don't know where. It, the author says, you know, if a woman is in the, I don't know if it's in the wilderness or in the country, uh, yeah, yeah, the in the country, and she cries out, uh, e even though she cries out, she's not going to be held responsible. And uh, what what I've read is that the the rationale there is she's not being held responsible because no one was there to hear her. So even if it, w whether it was consent or rape, um, it you know her crying out wouldn't have made a difference. People wouldn't have known if she'd cried out or not. So there's like, there's a, like a contrast between this one and, and that one. Right. It um, assumes that she cries out, but no one hears her. And so, uh, so yeah, the conditions are certainly, uh, you know, suspect um, uh, that this happened without her consent. Yeah. So next is the issue of slavery. How could God allow slavery? Why didn't Why didn't He command um, when He was given the Torah, when He was given the commandments to Moses, "Thou shalt have no slaves"? But instead, what He does is He, you know, He He, he regulates it. He doesn't do away with it. And skeptics say, "Well, that means God is pro-slavery, and a good God wouldn't be pro-slavery." How do you respond to that? Well, the term slave is a loaded one, and uh, the King James Version of 1611 uh, actually only had the term slave once in the Old Testament, and, and it wasn't even in the Hebrew text uh, in, from the book of Jeremiah. Um, it's interesting that ever since you have had colonialism, uh, you know, antebellum slavery in the South, you know, Jim Crow laws, you know, re well, Reconstruction, Jim Crow laws, uh, et cetera, and then the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. After all of that, then you have modern versions adding the term slave, slavery, and so on. I mean, it, it, it's, it's interesting that older versions, not just in English, like the King James, but also, you know, German, uh, Dutch, uh, Spanish, uh, and so forth, these did not have the term slave until more recent 
translations came out. Now, what's interesting is that the term slave, servant, uh, comes from the word to work or sometimes to serve, uh, avad. You know, the term eved is the term for uh, servant. And so it can simply mean a worker, someone who is hired to work. And it does indicate, it's a neutral term. You can have someone who is a servant of you know, the Lord, an eved adonai, a servant of the Lord, uh, like Moses or Joshua. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an honorific title. Uh, you also have, in the book of Exodus, you have the people of Israel who are Pharaoh's servants. I mean, of course, they're being oppressed. It's bitter and so forth. So you have these adjectives that connote negativity. Um, and then God tells Moses, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Why? So that they may serve me in the wilderness. First, they're serving Pharaoh, but they're going to freedom under the, you know, in service to the Lord. So God, you know, so it's a picture of liberation. So one is seen negatively, the other is seen positively, but the same term is being used. So it's, so the, so the just kind of slapping on the label, oh, that's a slave. Well, it actually doesn't tell us anything about, well, is the, this servant or slave uh, is he enjoying himself? Like, for example, in Exodus 21, there's a servant who says, hey, I love my master, my employer. You know, he's been contracted out for six years as an indentured servant. He says, hey, I love, I love this gig. And he says, I'm going to make this a permanent thing. And so there's a ceremony to make this permanent. So he, you know, so who says that being a, quote, slave or servant in Israel has to be oppressive? No, the ideal is that you know, ultimately you would just stay on with this person who's been employing you and giving you shelter, clothing, uh, work to do. You're part of the household. I mean, it's a great gig. And so, uh, so John Golden Gate, Old Testament scholar says, you know, even lifelong servitude like this, this Hebrew servant in Exodus 21, uh, it could be something that is a, you know, a kind of a happy, secure, contented place to be. Who says it has to be oppressive? So we say, oh, look at, you know, look at, uh, uh, you know, the same sort of thing in, in Leviticus chapter 25, where you have foreign servants who are, you know, you can, it says you can acquire them. You can bequeath them to your children. A lot of people, I think this is probably the toughest text uh, people have to deal with. And so I go into a lot more detail uh, in this forthcoming book, Is God of Addictive Bully, than I did in, even in my Moral Monster book. Uh, so so what is going on here is that the 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 you may acquire these foreign servants. Interestingly, the word acquire is also used of acquiring an Israelite later on in the chapter. So an Israelite is being acquired, but it, again, it, it deals with this kind of transactional, legal, contr you know, contractual language, uh, where even at a, at a formal ceremony, uh, Boaz acquires, the same word kana is used, he acquires Ruth, as his wife, uh, which is, is part of a, a land deal that he's also purchasing land that's part of this transaction. But again, Ruth is portrayed as someone who is a wonderful woman. He calls her an, you know, an excellent woman, et cetera. So, so it's not as though she's somehow you know, purchased uh, as though she's a piece of property, certainly not.
Uh, she's portrayed as something who is someone who is a dignified woman, not some some sort of an object. So anyway, it, it, as we go on, we see that even the the foreigner can become a person of means in the land of Israel. Now, the the reason that people will attach themselves to Israelite households and stay with them permanently is because they don't have anywhere else to go. They can they don't they can't own land, and so they are inherently dependent upon the Israelites as and going to often attach themselves to Israelite homes and work within that kind of a setting. Doesn't have to be bad and they can do that permanently. And uh, so so we're not told anything about the how this is a terrible arrangement that, that you can't find security and contentment within this even long-term permanent relationship. But when we think of slavery, we think, oh, negative, you know, that's not good. And of course, our modern discourse has colored how we understand the term slave or serve, you know, you know, that, that term servitude. And our modern translations don't help the situation at all. So, you know, there are there, you know, I mean, there are plenty of other questions that we could go into, but that gives you a, a little bit of the uh, the guts of it. But I think translating using the translation slave inherently slants things negatively. It will, you know, you, you, you're, you're already having to recover ground just by using the term slave and all of the negative baggage that goes with it, uh, rather than saying servant and then, okay, how are these people who are described as servants? Is it negative? Is it positive? Is it neutral? Uh, and then you look at it that way. Uh, but I'd say, you know, slave, using the term slave uh, automatically brings up a lot of that emotional baggage in the minds of modern people. And we I think ought to be careful about simply defaulting to that. And I'd say a, the term servant is a better term that avoids a lot of that emotional baggage. And then you just look at these various contexts and see, oh, is this something that is kind of like what's going on in, uh, in Egypt? Or is it something much more benign or something neutral uh, or whatever? And uh, people would uh, often sell themselves into "quote unquote" slavery right. uh, for the purpose of, you know, I it, I've read it was you know pretty much like a welfare situation. They, they didn't get like a check from the government; uh, they had to do something else to stay alive. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and again, we're not saying that these conditions. I mean, we think oh, social security, welfare checks. Um, Medicare, Medicaid, and so on. Lots of great uh, government uh, helps for people who are in need. Now, we have to be careful about turning our, our safety nets into hammocks. That could be a danger. Uh, but, uh, but the Israelites didn't have these sorts of things. And so you'd have alternative ways of helping the poor so that they didn't have to sell themselves, like gleaning uh, um, laws where people, where you didn't, or you know, sometimes called scrumping, where you can take uh, take olives or figs from a tree. Not all of it should be plucked, uh, or leaving the edges of your field so that the you know, uncut, so that, uh, so that aliens, uh, the poor, can come and 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 help themselves to that, like Ruth does in in the book of Ruth at in Boaz's field. So she's a Gentile, vulnerable. Uh, she is the role of a subordinate, a servant. Uh, but yet, uh, but yet, she is one who is making taking advantage of those laws that are actually to help the Israelites. And one of the things that I point out in my book is that a lot of these laws within the law of Moses are, you know, they have they reflect a worldview that cares for the vulnerable, that doesn't take advantage of them or exploit them, which is a sort of thing that could, you know, readily take place in many of these other 
you know, surrounding nations. So I've got a couple of chapters that just look at some of these big worldview differences that highlight how the Israel that Israel was the place to be when it came to uh, to a lot of these benefits uh, and and uh, and the kind of care for the vulnerable uh, that was in place uh, for you know so that they would you know that you know Israel was was indeed the place to go. Say so even for a runaway slave that they were allowed to settle in any of Israel's cities. So uh, if, if that's the case for foreign slaves running away from harsh masters and they're not to be returned to their masters, how much more for people who are facing harsh conditions within Israel, that there's a freedom to leave too if they desire. So there's a certain freedom here. Uh, if you are being treated harshly, well, there's that the implication. Uh, leave and find someone else who will, uh, who will, be, who will take better care of you uh, rather than living under that kind of oppression. Yeah, and also uh, we sh we should make note of the fact that this is not it's not like God wanted this to be the case. Sure. Like even from from the very beginning, God desired um, you know this is a fallen world, and mm -hmm. um, the Old <coughs> Testament laws were never intended to be permanent. They were meant, you know, they were meant for that culture and that time. You know, as Michael Heiser says, God doesn't sanction a culture. Right. Um, so he, he was working within uh, that culture. And, you know, it would it would have been disastrous to overthrow slavery at that time. So what he did was he just worked within it and made sure there wasn't any abuses. OK, we're going to have the slavery thing going on. Let's make sure. Yeah, servitude. Let's make sure that uh, let's make sure that people are treated right. Let's make sure there you know there's no uh, power struggles and and you know so and sure. and also you know there you know no one no one uh, was supposed to be forced into slavery. You know there's there's kidnapping laws in the Old Testament. Um, so it's not it was usually a voluntary thing. Right. Yeah, and, and so there is a, uh, you're right about the the fact that we're dealing with, you know, as with any culture, I mean, there are some some cultures that are better than others, some cultures that are sicker than others. Uh, you know, all cultures are sick uh, to some degree, uh, but some are sicker than others. Uh, and, and so what we have is in Israel an acknowledgement, even, you know, the fact that the old covenant is going to give way to a new covenant uh, is significant. And also Jesus himself said that Moses permitted certain things because of the hardness of human hearts, Matthew 19, 8. So it's an acknowledgement that there are some laws that are not ideal, uh, but they're working with the situation on the ground rather than creating some sort of a utopian ideal that basically has people forget about every the way that everything has been done before and stepping into a completely new context in this vacuum uh, you know, it, it's it's something that doesn't operate that way, but God works incrementally with his people and help, helps them to move, uh, you know, and it's like the laws of, you know, as N.T. Wright has said, the law is like a booster rocket. Uh, it, it is something that does its job, gets the rocket out of the atmosphere, and then it drops off. Once the job is done, it's no longer needed, but it was still necessary during that period of time to get uh, get to the people of God where God desired them to be. Yeah, very good. Um, I want to I want to move on now to another uh, Old Testament law issue. And I remember when I first I came across this in my Bible. I, I had a large print NLT Bible, and I was reading it on my bed. I was probably like nineteen or twenty years old, 
And when I came across this passage, I was like, what? <laughs> it's, it's Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. It says, quote, if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid, end quote. Isn't this extreme parenting? Yeah. Well, it sounds like, you know, you got somebody who, you know, a kid who's got a chip on his shoulder and so on. We're, we're talking about, however, someone who is to be a responsible adult who is taking care of his family, uh, is not, you know, of course, this is in a covenantal community uh, where his life affects that of others. And here's someone who is supposed to be supporting his parents in their old age. Uh, he is someone who is actually uh, undermining uh, the parents when he should be caring for them. Uh, so this is something that is seen as utterly disruptive to the, the structure. I mean, think of, you know, we hear stories in our own day about how uh, how a, a, a kid who goes astray, I mean, you know, say in his 20s is, is ruining his life with drugs and alcohol and so forth. Uh, this is something that is, you know, it, it's, a, it's a great tragedy, uh, brings great harm and damage to so many people. Um, but let me say this, too, about these laws. Uh, these laws, and again, I, I go into more detail in my forthcoming book, Is God a Vindictive Bully, in which I, and again, I, I modify a few things from my uh, Moral Monster book, and, and this is one of them, where these laws are seen as exemplary. These laws are seen as sending a warning, not that this necessarily happened in Israel, but it's simply saying, this is a bad thing, avoid it. Uh, and even as we look at a lot of these you know, alleged death penalty cases in like for adultery uh, that are mentioned in the law of Moses, we also see that those laws are not actually implemented in the history of Israel when it comes to the death penalty. Sure, when there's uh, murder, that's one thing. Uh, and that's the one thing that cannot be uh, commuted to a monetary payment, then in that case, a death penalty is warranted. But for the 15 other cases where there are potential death penalty uh, um, threats that are involved, these can, can be commuted to a payment uh, and you know, so, that, so that the death penalty is actually isn't even carried out. So, so again, there's the way that the law is handled uh, it's, it's, it, it serves as a picture, as a kind of warning, uh, as highlighting certain priorities within Israel. But in terms of the actual you know, capital punishment as in Israel, that's just not how it was done in Israel or in, in other uh, nations uh, surrounding Israel. So, so I go into that into more detail. I per, that's perhaps all I'll say on the matter now. But, uh, but again, even in this case of a child who is you know, like a, an adult, um, who is defiant and is disruptive and is creating trouble uh, and, and refuses to live within community as he should as a responsible citizen. Uh, you know, the, the scriptures 
The law of Moses warns that this is a very bad thing. It ought to be avoided. Don't get yourself into this sort of thing. Okay, uh, we're going on an hour and 10 minutes. So I'll just ask a couple more questions. I, I won't ask uh, all of the ones that I had planned on asking. Um, uh, but one, one of them, I wanna, I'd like to ask this one, just came to my mind right now. What do you think of uh, John Walton's take on the nature of the Torah, uh, like as he expresses in his book, The Lost World of the Torah, yeah. um, that it's it's not, you know, strict legislation, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, uh, but that it's more of a moral guideline, you know, sort of like wisdom literature to know that, you know, how to, how to govern uh, something you would consult, but didn't have to follow like to, to the letter. Right. Yeah, I would say that there is, uh, you know, there are some good things that John Walton and Harvey Walton have to say on this matter. Uh, I agree in part on that. I did do a book review for the Christian Research Journal on this, so you can look online uh, to see that. Um, and so I, I, but I would say that there are also moral dimensions that come precisely because Israel is part of a story in which God has redeemed the Israelites, that God has brought them out of Egypt, and that this has moral entailments for how the Israelites are to live within their own community. Uh, and there are moral entailments that come with how the Israelites are to say treat uh, foreigners who are in their midst and so on. Uh, so while yes, there is a certain you know, exemplary nature to this, like even the, the case that we talked about with the rebellious son, uh, and you know, and, and even how these laws are carried out in Israel's history—they're not, you know, actually carried out as capital punishment, uh, you know, typically except for for murder. Uh, you know, so I go into details on that, but I'd say there are also there are also moral dimensions that are part of how Israel is to operate, how Israel ought to look out for the vulnerable and so forth, uh, that because God is concerned about how the vulnerable are to be treated, then the Israelites are to imitate that kind of a mindset. So there are moral dimensions to this, and I go into more detail uh, on this, uh, but I think it's precisely because there is a worldview that is being expressed within the Israelites' Uh, Torah, the it's the instruction uh, the you know, that this is uh, that there, but it, there is there is also a relational component that the Israelites have in this covenant. Unlike other ancient Near Eastern uh, treaties or covenants, uh, God is highly relational with His people uh, in Israel. This is very unique. Uh, it is an IU relationship that God has with His people, and so this brings with it certain moral responsibilities that aren't as thoroughly embedded within some of these other ancient Near Eastern contexts, where a king makes a uh, you know a, a treaty or a covenant with his vassals or his un, his subordinates. So that's all I'll say about that. Yeah. So let's talk about one more moral issue, and that's uh, the issue about Elisha and the she-bears. Uh, critics of the Bible refer to this story, um, pointing to it as a reason to dismiss the Bible as a holy book. Uh, the argument is pretty straightforward. If Elisha would cause bears to attack children, 42 children, for insulting his hairless head, how can we regard him as a good person? God is a Trinity. How can we regard how can we regard God as good persons? Right. Well, as you read the text more closely, uh, one, this sort of a thing was warned against 
in, you know, th you know th there were warnings in Leviticus, say, 26, uh, 22, where God says that if Israel disobeys his covenant, say, running after other gods, then God is going to render the land fruitless or, you know, uh, or, or that he is going to send wild animals, beasts, who will uh, bereave parents of their children, that the land will be bereft of them. This narrative, of course, you know, in First Kings uh, one, Elisha himself, the mentor of sorry, Elijah, the mentor of Elijah, is a hairy guy, uh, and so by contrast, uh, Elisha was not. Uh, he had, uh, you know, he was not as hairy, and so they called him a bald head. Uh, but uh, to the you know, more to the the point, who are these children? Well, just little kids on a playground uh, saying, you know, na 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 na. There goes Baldy. Uh, no, uh, it was something much more severe. Uh, for one thing, these youths are ba basically unmarried, you know, uh, you know, unmarried young men who are not yet heads of households. This is a term used for anyone who you know could be mar of marriageable age, could serve in the military even, uh, but yet was not married. Uh, and so even like Rehoboam, uh, this the uh, the son of uh, of Solomon, who was taking over the kingdom, uh, Rehoboam, uh, rather than listening to the elders, listened to his own peers, those he had grown up with. They're the same ones called youths. Uh, so you know, so they're the ones who are saying, "No, be harsh with the people," and so he follows their advice. He wasn't following the advice of his little children. He was following the advice of his peers who were of marriageable age, um, you know, and, and also the term has a connection to royalty. So they're in Bethel, uh, which is the center of idolatry. Elijah has just gone up to, uh, to Jericho and there's, there are these poisonous waters there. And through Elisha's intervention, the waters become sweet and the land becomes fruitful. That is, it is no longer bereft. That's the same language that's used. So the land had been bereft of fruitfulness. It had been unfruitful or bereaved. And so when Elisha goes then to this center of idolatry, he is being mocked. He is not taken seriously as a prophet. Uh, he is someone who is mistreated rather than being listened to. And so as God promised in the Mosaic law in the book of Leviticus, two bears come out. This is, this is you know, God's judgment on their refu the refusal of people to obey the law and even being disdainful of one of God's representatives who is there to bring blessing. If you listen to Elisha, there will be fruitfulness. You'll, the land will not be bereaved. But if you reject the prophet then you know and, and even mock the prophet then these are the sorts of things that are going to happen to you that god will carry forth his promise uh to bring judgment through wild animals that will attack you so it wasn't as though this came without warning there was warning in the law of moses that these will these things will come upon you these curses will come upon you if you refuse to listen to me and so we see that being played out there yeah and also, I mean, it says, I, I noticed that it, it, it mentions their number. 
Um, I've seen some commentators say that maybe Elisha even could have been, you know, it because you know this is just this is just a general term for a, a young person could could be someone from, you know, even a fifteen or an eighteen year old. Um, these are pretty like adult sized guys. Uh, there's forty two of them. Elisha may have been afraid of his life, and he may have had good reason. They may have attempted to do more than mock him. Maybe they planned on attacking him. And, you know, Jesus does talk about how, you know, and even the Old Testament talks about how prophets were killed. You know, maybe he was about to be under attack and God was protecting him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this this same term that is uh, mentioned in, you know, the same number, uh, too, is mentioned later on in Second Kings chapter 10, where there are 42 uh, young men from the royal house of Omri, whom Jehu uh, slaughters. Yeah, so this number is symbolically connected to the concept of potential blessing or uh, curse from God. Uh, so there's this, uh, you know, so this there's this connection uh, that is being mentioned here. That uh, that uh, you know, that, so there. In, in fact, the term you know, young men or uh, these youths, that is a term that is used for older youths uh, in uh, in the book of, uh, you know, First and Second Kings. In fact, even, and I just kind of throw this in there too, even uh, in uh, First Samuel, when David, you know, he is seen as one of, you know, a, a young man, not yet married, uh, and even his own brother Eliab is, is seen as one of these young men, these youths, uh, but he was big and strong, a warrior-like person, and that's why Samuel says, well, surely the Lord's anointed is before him, but again, and, and David had already killed a lion and a bear, so uh, as a youth, uh, so this, again, these youths are uh, definitely not simply kids, uh, and we see that played out in, in these historical books of Samuel and Kings. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Paul Copan. It's been a stimulating conversation. <laughs> Very good to be with you. I appreciate it, Evan, and uh, look forward to the next time we can do this. So before we go, do you have any um, future upcoming engagements, uh, speaking events that you'd like to tell our audience about if they're, uh, you know, that they might want to attend? Uh, well, in terms of uh, speaking engagements, uh, I mean, I do have uh, some that are probably, I mean, I, I suppose what I, the best thing to do is for me to uh, put some of those up. I'm, it's high time to put some of those new uh, events up on my website, paulcopan.com. Uh, and so I'll be posting where I'll be speaking. So I've got some speaking engagements uh, this coming fall. Uh, some are going to be a bit more uh, closed to the, to the public. I'll be speaking in the Houston area in October. Uh, I'll be speaking uh, in, uh, well, I'll be at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting in November. Uh, I have a speaking engagement up in Massachusetts uh, at the end of October. Uh, I've got a, I'm gonna be speaking in, uh, in the Nuga, Tennessee area in, in uh, March. I'll be in Oklahoma in January. Uh, so anyway, uh, just stay tuned, take a look at my website, and uh, we'll try to keep that uh, updated and current. Uh, so be happy to meet with uh, with any of you as our, our paths uh, cross as I, as I come to your area. So uh, so we'll be happy for that. All right. Well, thank you again, Paul Copan, for uh, coming on the, uh, the podcast. And I, I would like to give a shout out to my patrons, um, Adam and Amy Garman, who uh, just became a patron one hour before we started recording this. So this is a brand, new, a brand spanking new patron. 
uh, they they share an account, their husband and wife. Uh, so Adam and Amy Garman, uh, good to have you on board. Uh, Zach Go Adam Wood, and Amy. Uh, what? Go Adam and Amy. Yeah. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Zachary Miller, Slam RN, Andrew Milnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you would like to help this ministry financially, go to www.patreon.com slash cerebral faith. Peace out. God bless. And I will see you next time. And keep using the brains that God gave you. Thank you.